2 Kings chapter 15, if you'll join me there. Last time together, we just began to make our way into chapter 15 together uh, as we were there looking at some of the lifespan of a king in the southern part of Israel. Again, this is the divided kingdom, a time when there's a king reigning in Judah or the southern kingdom, as well as simultaneously, there's always a king reigning in the north. And we left off looking at Azariah, or he's often known as well as Uzziah uh, in Second Chronicles. That name is used more frequently of him. And now as we come to chapter 15 uh, and verse 8, we now shift focus once again back to the northern part of Israel. And you'll notice as we go through particularly chapter 15 together uh, that the northern kingdom at this point in this next section uh, really begins to manifest a lot of the symptomatic effects. It almost seems like now the the cumulative effect of many years and many kings of rejecting God and walking in the ways of idolatry and turning away from the Lord and leaders turning the people of Israel away from the Lord, that the cumulative effect of that in the nation is really beginning to take its toll now as the nation is not only declining morally and spiritually, but you begin to see the nation kind of starting to unravel at this point and kind of like in some ways like the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire was unique in the sense that it was an incredibly strong empire historically, but it seems historically that no one really ever conquered the Roman Empire. It, it rather instead kind of deteriorated from within. Uh, because of its immorality and its ungodly practices, it seems rather than being conquered by another nation, it kind of just unraveled at the seams. Uh, and that can happen to a nation, and we see it happening to the nation of Israel now in the north as we enter into this time. You'll notice that there's a constant uh, sort of indication of instability, and there are assassination after assassination after assassination, and all these power struggles and selfish and brutal acts of mankind. And certainly, I think as we look at these things, we should recognize, well, I don't know about you, but certainly we look at these historical passages, and they, in a lot of ways, run like a parallel line uh, to some of what we see taking place uh, in our own nation in some ways and things that we should recognize as God's warning signs as a nation as well. So we come to chapter eight, excuse me, chapter 15, verse eight now, again, shifting back to the northern kingdom of Israel. And it tells us that it was in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah. Remember, he had quite an extensive reign. So uh, toward the end of his reign there in the south of Judah, Zechariah now, it says the son of Jeroboam, and that's Jeroboam the second, Zechariah reigned over Israel in Samaria, notice not very long, for just six months. So a rather short reign. Verse 9 tells us, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, that is the first king of the north. Jeroboam the first, remember, was the first king who introduced idolatry to the people and wasn't just evil in his own practices, but he was someone who wasn't content to be evil on his own. Uh, he wanted to lead other people into his same evil ways. You know, and there are two different types of evil. 
there's an evil that's a passive evil in the sense that uh, somebody's content to just, you know, be an, an evil and uh, ungodly person in and of themselves. And then there's another form of evil where somebody is not content to just be evil and ungodly themselves. They want to bring other people into their same practices and they want to lead others into those same kind of things. And and, and this was the thing of, of Jeroboam the first as a king uh, that marked him is that he brought ungodly practices to the nation. He encouraged the people to walk in ways that were immoral and idolatrous and many times as this standard of evil we read a reference again this recurring phrase that a king would do evil in the sight of the lord and not depart from those same sins of jeroboam the first king and this is what zachariah was like as well another evil and godly king in the north and then verse 10 shalom the son of jabesh conspired against him and struck him and killed him in front of the people and he reigned in his place so we see why the reign of Zechariah was short only six months and after six months we see here that there was an assassination of the king Zechariah but notice it wasn't just an assassination it was actually a public assassination you read there in verse 10 that he struck and killed him in front of the people and then reigned in his place. So again, this would be a, a public assassination that took place because Shalom wanted to have the throne. Verse 11 says, Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And this was the word of the Lord, notice verse 12, which he spoke to Jehu saying, Your sons, that is his descendants, would sit on the throne of Israel until the fourth generation, and so it was. So, again, as we go through this, and you're going to see, as I said, one man assassinating the next man, and there's this power struggle back and forth for the throne, all these evil, and we're going to see some pretty barbaric and cruel things in our verses below that some of these people were doing to one another. But you notice in the midst of all this, uh, one of the marks here uh, of these things, not only the instability and all that, but the amazing thing is that the Bible holds out for us there in verse 12, that in the midst of all of man's wrongdoing, all the ungodly things that were happening among the society and the government and these assassination attempts, one king after another, in all these things still, God was reigning and ruling and having his way. Because verse 12 tells us that the reason Zechariah had his short stead, though it was on the throne for only six months, was because God had spoken a word to Jehu, remember a few chapters back, saying, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel for four generations. So this man, Zechariah, was the fourth descendant or the fourth generation from Jehu's family line. And this is why he did attain the throne even for those six months, that God was fulfilling his word. And again, this, I don't know about you, but uh, it doesn't perplex me as much as it actually encourages me. Sometimes people, uh, I find that there's almost two sides you can fall on. You know, there's that contradiction of we see all these 
evil things happen in the world. And I like you, you know, we watch the news and we see what unravels in our country and we see the horrible things that happen or what do we think, man, how could this be happening and all this evil and this wickedness and, and, and we, we struggle and we almost kind of wrestle with the fact that we kind of get perplexed and, and, and struggle with the fact of how could God be allowing this to happen? And you can get really perplexed and, and drive yourself crazy trying to figure out how a righteous, good, holy God could let human beings have so much, it seems, freedom, right, to do such evil, wicked, ungodly, chaotic things to one another here on this planet, or you can step back to me, I find, and fall on the other side of that and say, Lord, thank you so much that though it looks like people are out of control, barbaric, cruel, and the world is going nuts and falling apart, that in the midst of all that, you're actually still in control. And that even the wrath of man, you can use to praise you. And even the most wicked things you do, you can use for your good purposes. You know, right now I'm reading the book of Revelation for my devotional time. Just read this morning where the uh, two witnesses there uh, are put to death uh, because of their testimony for God in the last days. And all the people of the land are rejoicing because of these two witnesses who were such a great testimony for God. And it says for three and a half days, they left their dead bodies in the streets and they wouldn't allow their bodies to be buried. So kind of just again to, to desecrate them. It says they were giving gifts to one another and having holiday and celebrating. You know, great, God's servants are dead and they're, they're rejoicing. And again, where we're at now, and this is only still a future event, I can't imagine, you know, today we can with a camera, the whole world can watch something happening at once. So perhaps there are cameras zoomed in and here are these two murdered servants of God. They're lying in the streets and people are taunting and cheering. We killed God's servants and for three and a half days they wouldn't bury him but then three and a half days later it says and then the breath of god the breath of god came into them and they resuscitated and they came back to life and all the people saw the power of god and i thought to myself as i read that this morning wow all that horrible wicked stuff that they did and they were you know abusing and this cruel barbaric stuff and the desecration for three and a half days and here the wrath of man is going like that and god goes thank you because you're going to help me get a whole lot of praise when i then publicly raise those people back from the dead and if you would have put them in a grave maybe nobody would have seen it but because you left them there publicly in the streets and all the world and cameras and everybody's watching, God was like, thanks for giving me a stage. Thanks for giving me an opportunity. And again, I, I love to read sections like that in the word of God to just remind me that when things look like they're going horrible, and they are, I'm not diminishing that, that God's in control and that God is still ruling and reigning and his word is somehow marvelously being fulfilled in the midst of all those things and that we don't have to fret and have anxiety issues and, 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 and be overly concerned. Instead, we can say, hey, yes, things are going really south and falling apart, but yet God and his word and his plan somehow in the midst of all that is still getting fulfilled because God's an all-wise, all-powerful God that can coordinate and even use the wicked things of men, the wrath of man, to even ultimately praise him in the end in some incredible way. So here, God allows this king to come to a throne and it says this was so that the word of the Lord, that the generations of Jehu for four descendants afterwards would be able to sit upon the throne. Verse 13 says, And then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king 
in the 39th year of Uzziah, notice the change of name there, Azariah, Uzziah, they're used interchangeably. So Shalom, who had assassinated Zechariah, he now takes over the throne. And look at this, verse 13, and he reigned, the Bible says, a full month. I mean, just not a half a month. He actually got to reign a full month. I guess that's better than you know a half a month there. But again, here, his, this is the second shortest reign. Only one other king reigned less than him. One king reigned for only a week. We saw all the way back, I believe it was in First Kings. So this is now the second shortest reign. So we have six months on the throne. Then he's assassinated. This king now, Shalom, he only reigns for a full month. And the reason is, verse 14, for Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah, and he came to Samaria and he struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria and killed him. And he reigned in his place and the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led. Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Again, this reminds us, remember Jesus said, what measure you use will be measured back to you. Uh, and with the same judgment you use, it will be judged back to you so if you want mercy extend mercy god says you want to experience harsh judgment from people then be very judgmental and harsh on people the bible also says we sow and we reap and what we sow we do reap and here uh, what did uh, shalom do we're, we're told that shalom assassinated zachariah the king because he wanted his position and how long did his throne last well that worked real well he lasted a full month and then somebody assassinated him. Somebody basically said, hey, Shalom, thanks for the great idea. And a month later, <laughs> he took his practices and they assassinated him. And, and he said, I want to be now on the throne. And again, this is just as well, I think another good reminder that it is so foolish for us to think that somehow we can do things in fleshly ways and through carnal practices and you know we can be selfish and work the system and that somehow that's going to work it worked for shalom for a month and then he was assassinated it never works when you do things in a fleshly way whether it's trying to exalt yourself, the book of Proverbs says, don't exalt yourself in the presence of the king. The Bible tells us don't seek great things for yourself. That's what Shalom did. He, he sought something great for himself. He used wicked and ungodly practices to do it. He assassinated a man so that he could reign in his place. And one month later, a military man, one of his generals, Menahem, it says, turned right around there and killed him and reigned in his place again we notice just these marks of just again the instability the the carnality verse 15 says the rest of the acts of shalom were written uh in the books of the chronicles of the kings of judah and verse 16 then from tirzah menahem we get a little bit about his reign now he attacked tipsa and all who were there in his territory because they did not surrender so because they would not submit to his leadership, the idea is these were people who said, look, we don't, we, we, we don't, we're not submitting to your usurped authority. You don't have genuine authority from God. They didn't like this. There were, again, all these power struggles. I mean, think about this. This is the third king in six and a half months. <laughs> That's a lot of transition in a nation. 
So again, and this is a military man now who takes control of the throne as he assassinates King Shalom Menahem. Uh, but because they did not surrender to him, well, military men don't take too kindly to that. Therefore, he attacked them. And then look at verse 16, the end of it. And all the women there who were with child, he ripped open. Now that's barbaric. So the idea there is those who were pregnant with child literally to, to, to take and to rip open their bodies and kill their children inside with the sword. I mean, this is just, I mean, talk about barbaric and cruel. The kind of stuff that people will do when they are hungry for power. Again, we see all these marks of fleshly sinful activity, as I said, the power struggles, the lying, the cheating. The doing whatever is absolutely necessary, no matter how brutal and cruel in treatment, having no compassion for people. I mean, just willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want and to get where you want. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. I mean, willing to do whatever it takes. If that means I need to attack a city and run through with a sword pregnant women and rip open the wombs of pregnant women and kill their babies in the process to just conquer and subdue a people. Again, the idea of just casting aside all concern for whatever's proper. And again, this is always a very bad indication. You know, when somebody becomes so consumed in their sinful, proud attitude to want to have their way, to have what they want, to get where they want, that they begin to just behave in ways where, where people just, they're, they're just, they're casualties uh, and they don't matter anymore. And compassion for human beings goes out the window and people are just kind of, again, they're, they're expendable. And that's kind of the idea here. People were just expendable. I mean, you begin to do these kind of cruel things in treatment. Verse 17, and it was in the 39th year of Azariah that Menahem, the son of God, he became king over Israel and he reigned for 10 years in Samaria. It must have been a tough 10 years with a barbaric guy like that on the throne. And verse 18, again, here's our refrain, very common, repeated. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Verse 19, and Pul, king of Assyria. Now, here's the first time we see Assyria as a nation mentioned in the Bible, and they're going to play into the historical events unfolding going forward because remember, as the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, and the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin in the south, continue to turn away from God, first the northern kingdom will go into captivity. They will be conquered by Assyria, who we see here. And then ultimately, the southern kingdom of Judah, because they did have a few good and godly kings, it would be nothing more than just perhaps another you know, 100 or 200 years, and then they ultimately would fall, the southern kingdom as well, but they would go into captivity to Babylon. So here we begin to see now kind of the fall of the northern kingdom is what's gradually starting to unfold now in our chapters in front of us. So Pool, who also is known as Tiglath-Pileser, that was uh, apparently the name Tiglath-Pileser this guy took to himself, the king of Syria, he came against the land and Menahem, who was the king at that time, gave Pool, notice, a thousand talents of silver <clears throat> so that his might may be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his 
control. So he begins to make a partnership now with the enemy, the king of Assyria. He can see Assyria is gaining power, that they're beginning to gain control and kind of looking to negotiate with them here. He begins to kind of make some compromises. He kind of pays him off temporarily from coming in and conquering them. And Tiglath-Pileser or Pool, both the same man here referred to in the text, uh, he very patiently would conquer people in a gradual process. And he was more than happy at first to begin to just take compensation, to make them a vassal nation and begin to take money and tribute from them and to weaken them economically and then ultimately to just conquer them in a more complete sense down the road. So at this time, Menahem's kind of trying to pay him off and he offers to give him a thousand talents of silver. That's quite a substantial amount. And verse 20 tells us where the money came from. Well, whenever the government makes a policy, they got to get the money from somewhere, right? So Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. And so the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. So Menahem, nothing new under the sun. He said, we'll just tax the rich. They have a lot of money. We need all this money to be able to fulfill our program. So uh, let's just tax the very wealthy in the land. We can take money from them. They can afford it. So that's what it does here. It says he exacted from each one of those in the land who were very wealthy, 50 shekels of silver to accumulate this thousand talents of silver to pay the king of Assyria to kind of hold him off. And that caused him to turn back. And they no longer stood there in the land. They went away for a brief time. Now, the rest of the acts of Menahem and all they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So, again, Menahem makes, in my estimation, this mistake. We'll see as the text goes on. Because though it looks like what he did works... And it looks like he solved a problem. And this is the mistake people make sometimes. They think, well, look, if, if I was able to just kind of, you know, temporarily deal with the problem and get it to quiet down and go away, I, I, I solved the problem. No, no, no. We, we, we want resolution. We don't want to just temporarily appease a situation. We want to resolve a situation. And he doesn't resolve a situation. What he does here is he kind of just pays off through compromises. And it's never good to make compromises with an enemy force just to get ahead personally. So he doesn't want to deal with what's going on. So he pays them a thousand talents of silver. And in order to get what he wants, which is to get the pressure to go away, what does he do? Again, as we read there, it says he exacted the money from the people of the land to pay off the king of Assyria. So what does he do? In essence, you could say... Uh, he basically uses people to fulfill his own plans. And that's never a good thing to do that. If you have to use someone else to fulfill your plan or to get yourself out of a problem or out of a jam, you're not taking responsibility for your problem. Uh, and here he just taxes the people heavily, trying to fulfill his personal desire to get freedom. But what he doesn't realize is all he's doing is further obligating himself because he's not resolving the situation. He's just letting the problem compound and a little bit further down the road, it's going to get way worse because the cumulative effect causes it to just grow. And we'll see in a number of verses, the problem just expands even bigger because of this compromise he makes. He really forsakes his freedom and just becomes more in bondage to the whole situation. So verse 22 says, Menahem then rested with his fathers and then Pekahiah. His son reigned in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, then Pekahiah, the son of 
Menahem became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. So a short reign again, another change of power. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 24, and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Notice there in verse 24, the third time again, that repeated refrain of this same phrase again and again, describing these wicked and bad kings that Israel had in the north. Verse 25, then Pekah, different guy, the son of Ramaliah, an officer of his, so this is now again one of his military generals, maybe one of his bodyguards, he conspired against Pekahiah and killed him in Samaria. So another assassination, along with Argob and Arya, and with him were 50 men of Gilead, and he killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. Verse 28, notice, fourth time now. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Same description. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Now, again, I say the fourth time. Take notice Verse 9, verse 18, verse 24, verse 28, repeatedly the Holy Spirit keeps using this same refrain to describe these bad kings. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. And again, it's not like God lacks creativity. It's not like God's thinking, I wish I could say that a different way. I just, I'm just, I'm, can you get me a creative assistant up here, one of the angels that writes poetry or something, or, you know, really creative in the arts? God's saying it that way because God's purposely repeating himself. So again, when you say, why does that person keep repeating himself? Well, maybe what they're saying is important. Sometimes saying what's important is worth repeating. And God here repeatedly says the same thing again and again. It's almost as if God's saying, if you didn't get the point yet... <laughs> What I'm trying to say is, don't be someone who does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Don't be someone who does not depart from the sins of other people and the patterns of sins that you know that you should depart from. The problem with these bad kings is they did not care what was right in God's sight. They only cared about what was right in their own perspective. If in their view it was right and it was good and it was acceptable, they did it. Or if it was okay in the sight of people or okay in the sight of culture. But listen, the question is, is it right in God's sight? Is it right in God's sight? Because if it's not right in God's sight, it's wrong. And it's evil and it's sinful. And when we see other people doing patterns like that, what we don't want to do is repeat the patterns. All these kings were repeating, God says, the patterns of the sins of Jeroboam, their father. In other words, they had a pattern that was wrong. And instead of looking at the wrong pattern saying, you know what, we need to break the chain. My father's pattern, my, my grandfather's pattern, the descendants, that, that pattern is wrong. I need to break the pattern and do something different and turn away from that. And the problem was, is they weren't doing that. It's interesting. I, in fact, even, even checked recently, 25 times that same phrase is repeated in these sections of First and Second Kings and Chronicles. 
that, that someone did evil in the sight of the Lord, it did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. 25 times God continues to say that. It's almost as if God is trying to say, look, the most important lesson of history is to learn the lesson of history and not repeat it sometimes. Right? That's the problem. Oh, history's boring. Well, look, something about history is valuable. Sometimes the best part about history is learning from history so you don't repeat history. So that you don't do the same thing. That you instead do the opposite, that you do depart from what happened in the past. You depart from patterns maybe that you were raised with that were wrong patterns that you realize now. Or you depart from practices that you once participated in that were a part of them. You say, I need to depart from that now. Because that's not right in the sight of the Lord and that you turn and you steer away from that. And so here again, just four times, even in this one chapter, the Holy Spirit continues to put this in front of us to, I think, remind us as individuals, certainly as a country, we you know, just seem to just be repeating the same mistakes that are just leading to our downfall in many ways morally and spiritually. Verse 29, notice, this is what I was mentioning earlier. Here's now the, the next step of the uh, really captivity of the nation. Verse 29 says, it was in the days of Pekah, now king of Israel, a Tiglath-Pileser, king of Syria, came to Genoa and Kadesh, Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, some of these areas of the northern part of Israel, and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. So what we now come to now, as I said, this is the first deportation that happens in phases this is around 733 bc about 11 years later there'll be another deportation where more people will be taken captive by the assyrian empire and taken away from their land this is now the first step of deporting the people of israel taking them captive as the assyrian empire comes to power again just a few verses ago remember we saw that menahem what did he try and do he tried to compromise with the enemy tried to pay him off and instead of dealing with the issue he tried to brush aside the issue and kind of forestall the issue and i don't want well how can i just temporarily get a little relief from this and he should have got resolution not relief that's the big mistake as i was trying to say you don't want relief Oh, I just am so tired of this problem. I just want a little bit of relief. No, you want resolution. Resolved, done with, in the rearview mirror, goodbye, move forward. Because if you just get temporary relief by paying it off or making some compromise or working a system somehow and doing something to just kind of get it to go away temporarily, it always comes back, but it comes back a lot of times like a tsunami on you. And that's what happens here. He went away for a few years when his thousands of pounds of silver ran out he came back and he said you know what now i want land i don't care how much money went now he comes back and he just starts conquering territory and he says he starts to take the people captive and carry them away to assyria and he begins to take captive some of these northern areas and these territories at this point and this is what the assyrians would do they would come in and they would take people captive they would then bring them uh, to other lands and they'd populate other lands with foreigners and then they would take people from that land and they would bring them and they'd put them in other lands and all it was intended to do was basically was just to weaken and destroy the identity the national identity of people in such a way where they were not in their homeland they weren't around their people and their culture and they couldn't therefore then regroup 
and regain their power and revolt against the Assyrian Empire. So they're now taken captive, brought away. And again, very patiently, Tiglath-Pileser in some ways just goes to show you, again, God's uh, you know, reminder to us that, that enemies are patient. Tiglath-Pileser didn't just capture everybody right away. He took the money at first. He went away. He acted like everything was fine. And then he came back later on, and now he takes people captive. But wise enemies are patient, and they will gradually conquer and take control, not only militarily, but there's an enemy spiritually who does the exact same thing. And I tell you something. Please don't ever forget this. The devil is very patient when it comes to taking people captive. He's an eternal being. He's not in a rush. He'll gradually, incrementally take little areas of control and compromise until ultimately he takes people captive. Paul warns in 2 Timothy about those the devil takes captive, captive, same thing as our word here, he takes captive to do his will. And just like Tiglath-Pileser, he will patiently wait and wait and then at the right time come in and take full control over a person. Be careful. Don't make subtle compromises and make yourself vulnerable. The enemy will gradually take control in time if that's what he needs to do. Well, verse 30, then Hoshea, it says, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah. Big surprise, huh? And he struck him and killed him. Another assassination. And he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. And the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And in the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham. We go back now to the southern kingdom for a moment. The son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, but he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and the rest of the acts of Jotham, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Now, again, Jotham, one of the good kings, again, that we get in the southern part of Israel, it tells us in Second Chronicles regarding Jotham's life that the Lord made his ways to prosper because he prepared his ways before the Lord. Uh, and Jotham certainly did not do everything perfectly. We had a very short description of him given to us, both here and in Second Chronicles, but he is described as a man who brought his ways before the Lord. And again, before he would do things, that is, he would, instead of just jumping into something and then asking God to bless it, whether it was restoring the house of the Lord, as we read about there in our verses, or whatever it was, he did some good things for the nation in the south. He would always bring his ways before the Lord and say, Lord, here's, here's what I'm thinking. Lord, here's what I'm seeing. But, but Lord, is, is this your way or is this my way? And, 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 you know, the Bible tells us that in his heart, a man, you know, plans his course but the lord directs our steps uh and and that you know the preparations of the heart belong to man but but it's the lord ultimately that determines what unfolds and so we want to as we're pursuing things as we're contemplating and considering things if we want our way to be blessed of the lord then we want to we want to check in with the lord and like jotham we want to say lord I, I, is this what you want 
That's a good way as we pursue things and take control of our own decisions like Jotham's life. He was certainly seen to be a good king. We'll see in Second Chronicles more about the descriptions of his life. Verse 37 tells us, but it was in those days that the Lord also began to send Rezin king of Syria. Now that's not Assyria. This is the, the Syrian people, a different area. And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers. He was buried, it says, in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz's son reigned in his place. Now, at this point, it says, the Lord began to send against the southern kingdom of Judah now as a disciplinary action because he was displeased with the south. He began to send against them, it says, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah against the, the people of, of Judah as well. So we're getting a reference here as we kind of shift focus back to the south of a time period when God was actually orchestrating military tension and pressure against the southern kingdom of Judah from the Syrian people as well as from the people of Israel in the north. And the connection to that is actually the end of verse 37. It was because Ahaz had taken the throne in the southern part of Israel. And we'll see in chapter 16, it's because Ahaz was one of the more, if not one of the most wicked and ungodly kings in the southern kingdom. So this was disciplinary action God was bringing against the south. It was in the 17th year, chapter 16 says, of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, that Ahaz, the son of Jotham, became king and began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and that's always bad. 20 years old, that's a lot of energy when you're a very wicked person. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just like a bad combination there. Wicked king and 20 years old. That's a lot of energy at that time when he became king and he reigned 16 years. So from 20 to age 36, full passion and energy with complete wicked intentions. And he again did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as God as his father David had done. Now, take note, interesting connection here. It tells us that Ahaz, who was the son of Jotham in the southern kingdom, and as I just said, Jotham was one of the good and godly kings, but yet his son Ahaz, who takes the throne after him, is what? A wicked man. He's a very evil king. He's one of the most evil kings in Israel, which is, again, here's just this reminder laid out in the word of God before us again that a godly father is no guarantee of a good and godly child. Jotham was a good man. Jotham was a godly king. It says that the Lord strengthened him and he prepared his ways before the Lord, but now he has a son that is quite a wild man who's evil and rebellious and completely rejected what he saw in his father's life. And instead it says he reigned 16 years and did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. The idea is that he exercised his free will. Every person the Bible teaches has a free will and they can choose their way. And it says the way that he chose, verse 3, is he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He did not walk in the way of the godly example of his father. He chose to walk in his own way. And again, this is just a reminder, again, of the, the, the choice, the decision that each person has. Each person has the freedom to choose their own way. And we can do a great job as a parent and invest and do everything possible to give the best foundation. But at the end of the day, we also need to realize that our child has the freedom to choose their own way. We hope, we pray 
They walk in the way of the Lord. I think that if we, you know, encourage and do our best, there's a lot higher percentage and chance they're probably going to walk in that way. But there's no guarantee. They have to choose to want to walk in the way of the Lord. They have to choose to want to emulate those patterns of godliness their parents taught them. And Ahaz disregarded all those things and just chose a way of sin and evil instead. It says he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and made his son, look at this, pass through the fire. So he was into the worship of what we refer to as Molech, child sacrifice, where they would heat up a molten image, red hot, and then they would place their babies as a form of child sacrifice there upon the red hot arms of Molech and literally just allow it to roll down into the burning fire there as a way of sacrificing their best to this god Molech hoping to curry the favor again this was the idea again of just you know sacrificing their best for some favor or pleasure or blessing for their life to a greater degree and he participated in this child sacrifice according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So he resorted to the pattern of the very Canaanite people that God drove out of the land of Israel to give to them. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So he was greatly engaged in idolatry. Verse 5, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So again, we saw back in chapter 15, verse 37, that these two men, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, it says the Lord sent them against the southern kingdom of Judah. The reason is because Ahaz and his wickedness, but interesting, though it says the Lord began to send them we see here that it says they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't overcome him. In other words, God was allowing these two kings to come against Judah to discipline them as a way to try and sort of you know, judge and awaken them through the pressure of discipline, but God doesn't completely destroy them. God's merciful still. And even in the midst of his discipline, he doesn't allow them to be completely conquered and overcome. Uh, he's bringing discipline, but not destruction. You know, it's interesting when you uh, read Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to put a jot that in your notes there or whatever, Isaiah chapter 7 refers to what Isaiah prophesied during this time of this attack of these two kings against uh, Judah there and what the word of the Lord was to Ahaz, even though he was an ungodly man. And there God said to him, listen, Yes, these threats are coming against you. And yes, it looks like you're going to be defeated. But the Lord said, they're not going to harm you. And again, God was being merciful to this guy, even though he was at his worst. God was being patient. God was saying, if you trust in me and you believe, you'll be established. But if you choose to turn to other things in the arm of flesh, you'll be overcome. And God says, look, all I'm asking, would you just believe? Trust me. Stop relying on yourself and relying on everything else. And God said, you'll be established. But yet, unfortunately, we'll see Ahaz does not listen to the word of the Lord. God tries to caution him. God tries to warn him. Here, God doesn't let him be completely overcome. And boy, how many times in our life when really God's you know, action against us to discipline us was coming upon us and we more than deserved God to let us completely be overcome, crushed, and conquered, and God kind of put his restraining hand up and gave us another window of mercy. 
and another moment of grace and God let the pressure come but then he kind of went just like that and he didn't let it completely overcome you. And it's almost as if God's saying, do you, do you see through my fingers there? Do you see? That could destroy you. You realize that, right? <laughs> that could have been the end right there. But God mercifully intervenes. And, and what does God beckon? Well, I want you to go get the five golden apples and give me you know, 27 actions of this and that. But no, God says, would you believe? Stop believing what's wrong. Stop living according to your flesh. Believe that I have the power to help you to do what's different, to do what's right. And all God wants is us just to believe, to rely on him and to trust. In Isaiah 7, when the prophecy comes to Ahaz, all God's saying is if you don't believe, you're not going to be established. And God beckons him to, to believe. But verse 7 shows us that he chooses not to. It says Ahaz sent messengers instead to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, come, I am your servant and your son. So instead of submitting to God, he submits to the king of Assyria. He turns to the world empire at that time, the climbing world power, Assyria, and he says, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and save me. God can't save me. You come save me. From the hand of the king of Syria and the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. So Ahaz, to make it worse, took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and he sent it as a present, that wasn't a present, that's called tribute, sent it as a present to the king of Assyria, so the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kir. So, uh, again, such a common error when we don't rely on the Lord, th then we tend to rely on the arm of flesh in some way, and this is what Ahaz does here. He relies on human resources. He takes money from God's temple and he uses it to contract the security and the services of a stronger military, Tiglath-Pileser. They come in, they rescue him in this situation. But again, he's looking to the world. He's looking to people. He's looking to the arm of flesh to help him in a situation instead of relying on God. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm your servant. Lord, save me, come save me. And listen, and given God a chance to act, he uses some fleshly scheming way to get himself out of trouble. Boy, that is such a common human error, is it not? How many times, whether it's something like this, or, I mean, you can lay out the different theoretical scenarios that exist. How many times we're confronted with a situation and we have an opportunity? We can either rely on the Lord and genuinely pray and trust God and give God a chance to show he's God and to step in, to act, to intervene, to demonstrate his power and that he's real and that he can come through or we can scheme and manipulate and we can kind of temporarily relieve the situation through our little efforts of the flesh somehow. We go find some resource or person or way or we work a system and like Jacob, we connive and work people and work the system. And you, and you know what the biggest problem with that is? We rob ourselves of a chance to see the power of God. Man, I, I don't know why I'm not seeing God's power. Well, you give him a chance. Stop trying to do things in your power or look to other people or get... Try once in a while to say, Lord, I'm genuinely going to rely on you for this. 
Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm looking to you. I need you to come through, Lord. I don't want to go turn to the world for help to bail me out. I don't want to rely on Egypt. I don't want to rely on my flesh or my own efforts. Lord, I'm looking to you. I'm believing, God, that you're real and you can come through in this situation and give God a chance to work. That was the great mistake here. Unfortunately, that was made. And it did nothing but just further weaken the nation as a result. So verse 10 says, King Ahaz then went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he saw there an altar. At Damascus, the king of Ahaz sent then to Uriah the priest to design of that altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. And then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made that altar before the king Ahaz came back from Damascus. So he sends back the blueprints. He says, wow, I was here in Damascus you know, having some time together. And man, he's got this really awesome altar there. And that altar thing we have back in Israel, I mean, uh, that's nothing. I mean, this guy's altar is awesome. So he gets the patterns, the blueprints. He sends it back to Uriah the priest who seems to kind of just be a hireling rather than a man of God. And he just acquiesces and builds this replica of this altar for the king. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar and approached it and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and grain offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And he also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, in front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. In other words, what, what's being described there is he said, hey, you know what, that old altar, that old pattern, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was good back then, but... I mean, I found a new way. I mean, a great way. I mean, this is the way the world's doing it, man. You should see this hot altar they got in Damascus. This thing's hot, man. No pun intended. It's awesome. And if we get this new altar, we can, why don't, we'll keep the old altar, but we'll just kind of, you know, we'll kind of just put that over there. But we got to really make the focal point the way the world's doing it. Because up at the map, man, oh man, if we do it the way the world does it, all the world will come in. God might go out, but all the world will come in. <laughs> and he says, we need this. So they build this new altar and he moves the bronze altar, the true altar, over to the north side of the temple precincts. And then Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, on the great new altar, burn the morning and burnt offering and evening and grain offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and grain offering with the burnt offering of the people of the land. And there the drink offerings and sprinkle all the blood of the burnt offering and the blood of the sacrifice and the bronze altar before me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And then Ahaz also cut off the panels of the carts, removed, again, notice this key word keeps showing up, removed the lavers, took down the sea, the bronze oxen, and he removed the Sabbath, verse 18, pavilion, which they built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Syria. So, again, this horrible picture here where this king is basically removing things from God's house that were permanent things God intended to be a part of the house of the Lord. And he's removing these things and he's replacing them with worldly patterns and ideas that he got from outside of the house of God. 
And let me just say, that is always a really bad idea. And what's even more sad here is the, the priest at this time, it says, verse 17, Uriah the priest, he did whatever the king said. Instead of like the priests in Uzziah's day standing up to the king and saying, King, you may be a king, but in all due respect, God's the king of kings. And what you're asking us to do, whether you're a government official or not, is wrong. And we will not corrupt the house of God just because you're asking us to do that as our king. You know what? To me, here's the truest, listen, the truest picture of why there needs to be the separation between government and God's house. We talk a lot about the separation of church and state, the separation of church and state. Look, the purpose of the separation of church and state is to keep the state out of the church, not to keep the church and the things of God out of the affairs of state and society and the nation. This is the this is the true picture. The problem is, is when the government and political officials start saying this is you know, take that out of God's house and God's temple and put this in instead and they're dictating to the people of God and the house of God what should be replaced and changed and altered that's wrong that's why there needs to be separation that is the government is not supposed to tell God's people and God's house what goes on inside of it because that's sacred not the way that our world falsely interprets it backwards so don't let people lie to you Oh, separation of church and state. The whole point of that, our founding fathers, the whole point of that is government should not be interfering in the church. That was the whole point of that. And here's a pointed example of that, even from an Old Testament perspective. Well, why don't we stand together? Our time's eluded us. Let's pray.